Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we point the Good Ship podcast to 27.1127 degrees south, 109.3497 degrees west, 2,182 miles off the coast of Chile. I'm sure all of you know exactly where I'm talking about when I gave you this coordinates. Oh, yeah. There are, everyone's <laughs> yelling at their... Everyone's yelling at their podcasts right now. <laughs> we are talking about the island of Rapa Nui. To give it the name its inhabitants call it, rather than Easter Island, the name it was given when it was discovered on Easter Sunday by Dutch explorers. Yeah, this so. is one of those times when a news story comes up on our radar and is too interesting to pass up. And Rapa Nui is one of those places that is only known for maybe one or two things for most people. Uh, big stone heads. And the idea that the inhabitants caused their own demise through overuse of the island's resources. Well, it turns out that this is probably not the case at all. I mean, the big stone heads part thing happened. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's, <laughs> don't they're worry. There. <laughs> they're there. Um, they're still awesome, and we will get to them. However... The story that made our little podcaster ears perk up comes from the Journal of Archaeological Science, Jazz, um, yes. and was published in April 2020, so super recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read uh, from a write-up of that study published by sapiens.org, um, and the article was written by Tom Garlinghouse, who says, <laughs> Rapa Nui is often seen as a cautionary example of societal collapse. In this story, made popular by geographer Jared Diamond's best-selling book, Collapse, the indigenous people of the island, the Rapa Nui. I don't think it so. had an exclamation point. It's not it like... was in all caps, though. Oh, okay. Then, yep. <laughs> so, then your, why, your rendition stands. That's why I, I yelled it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I hope the, the microphone caught the echo in this room. <laughs> yeah, future me is going to be surprised all over again by that. <laughs> so the indigenous people of the island, the Rapa Nui. So the Rapa Nui people live on Rapa Nui. Mm-hmm. Stay with me here. Um, they so destroyed their environment that by around 1600, their society fell into a downward spiral of warfare, cannibalism and population decline, presumably due to all the warring and cannibalizing. That would that's that would cause a decline. Yeah. <laughs> editorialization mine these catastrophes (laughs) the collapse narrative explains resulted in the destruction of the social and political structures that were in place during pre-colonial times though the people of rapa nui survive and persist on the island to the present day In (laughs) in recent years researchers working on the island have questioned this long accepted story for example our anthropologist terry hunt and archaeologist carl lipo who have studied the island's archaeology and cultural history for many years have suggested an alternative hypothesis that the Rapa Nui did not succumb to a downward spiral of self-destruction, but instead practiced resiliency, cooperation, and perhaps even a degree of environmental stewardship. Mm-hmm. So, um, little, so we're going to have like a... <laughs> We're it's an, an article we're an onion of, of quotes yes so we're gonna like little little sub quote we're gonna pull from the oxford handbook of prehistoric oceania um and it re- conveniently written by hunt and lipo yeah uh, <laughs> rather than a story of catastrophe and collapse rapa nui prehistory is a case study of success on a remote resource poor island Polynesians populated Rapa Nui around 1200 CE as part of rapid expansion throughout the remote Pacific. 
Colonists brought a roster of plants, taro, sweet potato, banana, sugarcane, etc., and animals, rats, chickens, and hang on a second, we're going to get back to those rats, um, along with a variety of knowledge about subsistence strategies like fishing, cultivation, and cultural practices such as statue and monument construction. Following colonization, pop, original colonization of Rapa Nui. Yeah, not European. The uh, yeah. Following like the just peopling like of Rapa Straight Nui. up people moving to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, population grew rapidly and reached a sustainable equilibrium around 3,000. People, not years. <laughs> I <Yes>. feel like <laughs> as the island was... <laughs> As the island was transformed from a palm forest into an agricultural and human landscape. Also, real yeah. quick, um, apparently the like Rapa Nui palm, like the indigenous, like an indigenous yeah. species of, of palm is like the largest palm uh-huh. in the world, but it went extinct. Oh, but like crazy. <laughs> like it's like super big. Well, it was. Which is interesting that. Does it occur like, anywhere else this, in Oceania? I don't know that it does. Oh, Did bummer. Yeah, but big, big into palms there. Yeah. Um, well, you would be Polynesian <laughs> Polynesian rats as hitchhikers or an intentional introduction. No, we don't know. So we might have a five goes west situation. Somewhere. Um, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, rapidly, or shall I say? rapidly spread across the island, potentially reaching numbers in the millions in a very short yeah, time. 3,000 people. Given the million rats. <laughs> a million rats. Um, given their predilection for palm nuts, mm-hmm. the slow rate of growth of the native palm, which was real big, and slash and burn cultivation practices, ultimately the palms went extinct. Mm-hmm. However, no carrying capacity calamity befell the island as a consequence. What an alliterative sentence. I know. Clearing the landscape for cultivation and nutrients released from the burned trees created opportunities for at least short-term soil enrichment and cultivation. Mm -hmm. So let's head back to that sapiens piece. Ahem. As archaeological evidence for people doing well on Rapa Nui, the research team looked at Ahu, the stone platforms on which those iconic stone heads, which are called Moai, stand. Archaeologists have documented at least 360 ahu, most of which cluster along the island's shoreline. They vary in configuration, though mostly though most are typically rectangular in shape and are made of a basaltic made of basaltic stones neatly fitted together. In addition to their use of statue platforms, the ahu function as shrines and places of burial. Can I jump in for one second? It's yes, it's may. never stopped me before, but um, <laughs> I just wanted to note that I found I linked it here so it'll be in the show notes but i didn't include in this script that the ahu are thought to have been constructed um due to their the placement and proximity to freshwater seeps on the island so Mm -hmm. there was a sort of spatial analysis done of the ahu on rapa nui and what's around them and it seems like most of them coincide with places where there's easily available fresh water so that seems to have um you know Contributed to the significance of, of those places. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it has like very, um, it, very crucial role in their lives, not only spiritually, but like very pragmatically. And probably of, one contributes to the other. Like, you know, fresh water is so important that maybe it's ascribed some sort the, of. There would be, what is that called? Like importance. sort of Newman. It's a, it's a numinous, it's like numinosity where it's like, there's a sort of holiness to the place. Yeah. Um, because the, whatever's uh, there is oh. so important. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And so it's sort of like a transcendental importance. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Um, I thought you were cutting in to correct me for saying burial. <laughs> no, I would never do that. <laughs> okay. Just, um, it creeps up on me sometimes. Uh, Robert Dinopoli, a doctoral student in anthropology at the University of Oregon, and his colleagues used existing radiocarbon dates from previous excavations at 11 different Ahu sites. They employed what is called Bayesian analyses, which allow scientists to model the probability of a specific events to build a more precise timeline of construction activities at each site. 
The new research indicates that Ahu construction began soon after the first Polynesian settlers arrived on the island and continued even after European contact in 722, 1722. The reasoning being that, you know, if you're able to spend resources on building giant sacred figures, you're doing okay. Yeah. So that was their sort of benchmark for population success. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if you're, if you, if it's like a very much like a positivistic, like success failure, like it's like a switch. Yeah. <laughs> like you're either Binary, in success or you're or in failure. Yeah. This would, ma- yeah, this would make sense. Mm-hmm. That, um, so this timeline argues against the hypothesized societal collapse occurring around 1600. Dinopoli and colleagues argue that the downturn of the islanders began only after Europeans ushered in a period, period characterized by disease, murder, slave raiding, and other conflicts. However, the whole rat thing, um, yeah. maybe if Jared Diamond had written collapse, colon but for rats rats <laughs> like <laughs> that maybe like i i think that it would be much more applicable because it sounds like um there was a bit of a, a rat collapse, collapse but like having to do more with like rats and palm trees yeah yes so the thing about maybe we can bring it up with his publisher <laughs> and maybe we could pitch it hmm. <laughs> i just wanted to bring i just wanted to like Bring our attention back to that time that I said rapidly. <laughs> rapidly. Yes, you did an excellent rat pun. Thanks. I commend Thanks. you. Consider that pun ratified. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> okay. The thing about characterizing a period of time in any civilization as a decline or a collapse. Well, We've talked about this before when we've talked about the Mezzo and South American empires and when we talked about the Khmer civilization and Angkor Wat. It's almost never a collapse in all these cases. And in the case of Rapa Nui, as you may have caught earlier, people still live there. So, And they are also called like it's just they're it's still like called the Rapa Nui. <laughs> they're still there. And they speak Rapa Nui like or is it this isn't hard. Yeah. Well, it's Rapa Nui. Okay. The Rapa Nui speak Rapa Nui on, and live on Rapa Nui. Yeah. I this mean, is, it's easy to remember. Right? Yeah. It's nice. Convenient. So this is pulled from the Indigenous World website, which is a really cool resource, um, iwgia.org. Um, quote, the 2012 census estimated Rapa Nui's total population at around 5,761 across an area of 163.6 square kilometers. This estimate turned out to be flawed and as a result has largely been nullified. The 2002 census, I know, they were, I guess they were very wrong (laughs) and just like counted three people and extrapolated. The 2002 census, which I mean, which estimated the total population at 3,756 people is therefore referenced in most calculations. So that's a 2,000 person difference. Seems fine. That's a 2,000 person difference from 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Seems fine. Like that's how bad they whiffed it. (laughs) They're like, this is better than what you did. Beefed it. That census recognized 60% of the population as indigenous Rapa Nui, while 39% were mainland Chileans with mixed descent. Uh, Rapa Nui's traditional language is, as we said, Rapa Nui. The 2017 projections from the Chilean Instituto Nacional de Estadísticas, Estadísticas, yeah, I got that right, uh, the INE, estimated a population of 7,750. So, Also, I think... We have not mentioned yet that Chile annexed Rapa Nui yeah. in like 1888. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why this stuff is Chilean. Yes. It's off because, the coast of Chile. And so they're basically well, like, we're I mean, closest. Off the coast of yeah, Chile. 3,000 miles off the coast of Chile. <laughs> like, it's yep. in, it is in the middle of the Pacific. So that's why we're referring to Chilean. Yes. Yeah. Good catch. During 2018, the Rapa Nui people have of Rapa Nui have maintained their demands for recognition of their territorial and political rights, that is, recognition of their right to self-determination and their ancestral property rights over the entire territory of the island. In November 2017... And I, um, I cut... like for time, um, I trim some stuff down, okay. but on, in the show notes, we're going to have, um, some links to some stories and, um, and also a, a, a 
article on cultural survival around um, a particular uh, demonstration that happened where a oh the other one yeah the hotel was- one. One yeah, one clan um, sought to have to have their their ancestral land repatriated. Um, and it happens to now be like a high end like spa and resort. Yeah, they and, weren't they weren't uh, too keen on the idea. Yeah, they they um, weren't successful. Um, but we're gonna, I'm gonna include um, some news stories and and some other th- other things looking at. Um, the, that situation mm-hmm. and how, um, how, how badly it was handled in my view yeah. by the police and the Chilean government. I agree. So there's more stuff. There's going to be more stuff in the show notes that mm-hmm. I really recommend people, um, check out and, um, and then, you know, just keep clicking from there on the links that we include. <laughs> yep. In November 2017, Chile finalized the complete transfer of the administration of the Rapa Nui National Park to the Mauhanua Indigenous Community, a community constituted under law number 19,253. In case oh, you're wondering. It was a good one. Yeah, that old chestnut, <laughs> which establishes regulations on protection, promotion, and development of indigenous people, and which creates the National Indigenous Development Corporation. Although this is an important step towards recognition of the Rapa Nui people and for their right to administer their property, the truth is that this transfer was made in the form of a concession to administer the park. The state still systematically refuses to recognize indigenous people's collective rights to ownership of the land, in particular ownership of the territory comprising the Rapa Nui National Park, which contains all of the Rapa Nui's sacred and ancestral sites. This has exacerbated conflicts with the government as the Rapa Nui see the action as forcing them to live on their land, not as owners, but rather as occupants. If this sounds vaguely familiar, it's because we mentioned a similar situation when we talked about the Mapuche people and how the Chilean government used the story of the Brujos and the Mbunche to marginalize them. And if you haven't listened to that yeah. one, it's it's one of our Spooktober specials. It's, yeah, it's a South American horror story. Mm-hmm. Is the name of that episode. (laughs) And yeah, not to like, not to like exclusively dunk on Chile here. Um, It's just situations where they um, perhaps. uh, like it just has it just so happens that um, we have <laughs> two examples, two, of- two stories that's like specifically deal with like, Chilean annexation. Um, yeah. But. And it's sort of Chile by, uh, by no means is alone in doing <laughs> this. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just um, these particular stories don't cast Chilean government yeah. in the best light. But it- give us time. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. <laughs> we'll find plenty of others. <laughs> so it should be noted that the island of Rapa Nui is located approximately 3,800 kilometers away from the South American continent, and its original people lived the farthest away from another inhabited point than any other people on the planet. Such extreme geographical conditions pose a true challenge for the survival of members of this community, even in the 21st century. The new law, so granting them some sort of concessions of ownership, fails to provide a concrete solution to these issues. In the political realm, for the exercise of the people of Rapa Nui's right to self-determination over the island's territory, the first obstacle lies in the constitution of the Republic of Chile. Chile, as a unitary state, considers only the mainland's reality for purposes of governing and legislating without taking into account the traditions, customs, and cultures of the Rapa Nui people. It's sort of analogous, although not not as culturally analogous, to Great Britain's colonization of the Americas and their attempts to, you know, pre-Revolutionary War, their attempts to legislate without really taking into account things that were actually happening 3,000 miles away. Um, Or even further, as like the case was in in other um, colonies like Malaysia and and other countries that are no longer 
the same thing as Malaysia (laughs) because they are no longer under British rule. Yeah. Uh, These issues directly affect the political participation of members of the Rapa Nui people within Chile's legislature, as you might expect. They have no representation or voice and throughout history have failed to be considered when laws are developed, which generates constant conflict over the application of national legislation on the island. When developing laws, the existence of this community, its remoteness, its culture and customs have never been considered, causing a sense of neglect among Rapa Nui's inhabitants. Under Chile's current electoral system, the Rapa Nui people have no possibility of having a representative in any chamber of the National Congress. They are thus unable to express an accurate opinion, which is mandatory in order to be considered in the national legislative process. Historically, the Rapa Nui people have had to go begging in search of political will on the part of mainland congressmen. So the Rapa Nui people are very much present on the island and, it would seem, struggling to make themselves heard within the political system of a country almost 4,000 kilometers away. But on that note, let's move away from politics a bit and talk about some of the cultural materials that the ancestors of the current Rapa Nui population left behind. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. So I think maybe we probably have to talk about the Moai first, right? Yeah. I mean, like they have their own emoji. That's that's the standard. I you know you've made don't, it. I mean, I'm not I'm not mad that that there's a Moai emoji. Yeah, but when am but I gonna I use don't, it? When are you going to use it? Unless you're and going when there? are you going to use it in a way that like the, is cool? Yeah. <laughs> like I guess I maybe if you're describing like, an archaeological project and they're like, Oh, what's it about? Moai. They're like my so um who are they the 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 folks that we mentioned above um hunt and oh, hunt Lipo. and Lipo. Yeah. they they that their that text emoji feed is, was made yep. specifically for them <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> to text each other it's just moai exclamation point <laughs> moai moai exclamation point <laughs> so um the word moai means statue in the indigenous language rapa nui which is spoken by um, the Rapa Nui on Rapa Nui. Right. <laughs> See? Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. Um, <laughs> nearly half of all the known Moai are still at Rano Raraku, the main Moai quarry. But hundreds were transported from there and set on stone platforms called Ahu, as we mentioned above, um, around the island's perimeter. Almost all Moai have heads that are not of like human proportions. Um, and those heads are th- about three eighths the size of the whole statue. Mm-hmm. So the Moai are chiefly the living faces, the Aringa Ora, of deified ancestors, being so this is Aringa Ora, Ata, Tapuna. The production and transportation of the more than 900 statues so many. is considered a so many. Yeah. So, and also something that, um, that we're going to talk about that it wasn't until this episode that I ever really thought about it. Um, and I want folks to take a second and think about this is like, they did this for a while. Yes. Yeah. Like I've always thought of it as being like the defining feature that from like the dawn of time, this is what they did. And this is what they do until that whole collapse thing. And like, that's why they stopped doing it. Nope. 
And like it just was it was something that happened over a period of time. So this so there's 900. I guess I kind of thought there was like infinite <laughs> or like there they, there's up to like infinite because we may never find them all kind of thing. But no, we, no, they're like, just hanging out there. They're- we have a pretty good sense of how many there are because they are kind of big. Um, <laughs> and there's around 900. And so the production and the transportation of them is is considered by everyone, I think, a remarkable creative and physical feat. Yeah, I would assume even because if you again, are an indigenous person <laughs> of Rapa Nui descent, you'd be like, yeah, that was, that was a big deal. Yeah, they, they are just like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> so <laughs> the tallest Moai erected called Paro was almost 10 meters, being about 33 feet high and weighed a little more than 90 tons. Yeah, so 180,000. 90 tons. Eight, 90 times 2,000 is? 180,000. Yes. I got there. 180,000 pounds is heavy. I have trouble with yeah, zeros, um, okay? And so, so, so that is the, so that's the tallest one. That's, it's, that's not like a representative size. No, that's. Um, but yeah. we'll talk about a few more so you'll get a sense of kind of. What, the range here. Um, the Moai are monolithic statues, meaning that they're carved from like a single huge chunk of stone. So they are a monolith and they are a megalith. <laughs> they're real big. Um, their style is similar to forms found throughout Polynesia. Uh, Moai are carved in relatively flat planes, the faces bearing proud but enigmatic expressions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 The they they that makes it sound like they've all like like posed for their author's photo. Yeah. Like for their promotional tour. They're all stroking their Um, chin and smoking a pipe. Yeah. The, The human figures would be outlined in the rock wall first, then chipped away until only the image was left. The over large heads being a three to five ratio between the head and the trunk have heavy brows and elongated noses with a distinctive fish hook shaped curl of the nostrils. The lips protrude in a thin <laughs> pout. Me. <laughs> like the nose, the ears are elongated and oblong in form. The jaw lines stand out against a short neck. I, I want to mention something because we've, we've mentioned this a couple times now, but I wanted to, um, pointed out they have bodies i don't know i i maybe some of our listeners know this but like they're not just heads it's the whole person yeah 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 and so and so we get to the body (laughs) um and the torsos are heavy and sometimes the clavicles are subtly outlined in stone the arms are carved in bas relief and rest against the body in various positions hands and long slender fingers resting along the crest of the hips meeting at the hami or the loincloth with the thumbs sometimes pointing towards the navel so they're doing kind of a this guy this guy (laughs) who's Um, got two thumbs and a giant head this guy (laughs) Except for one kneeling moai, the statues do not have clearly visible legs. So there, there's there's diversity in their form, mm-hmm. and and um, and they seem to be representative of, well, interpreted as representative of individuals. If they're deified yeah. ancestors, then it would be sort yeah, of so unique to a person. It makes sense that they would be individual mm-hmm. in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1979, Sergio Rapu Haoa and a team of archaeologists discovered that the hemispherical or deep elliptical eye sockets were designed to hold coral eyes with either black obsidian or red scoria pupils. Yeah. Which sounds gorgeous. Um, the discovery was made by collecting and reassembling broken fragments of white coral that were found at the various sites. So we've got these giant heavy statues that start off at a quarry, uh, like kind of the same, all one quarry, which like it's a small island. So it makes sense that there would be a quarry. Yeah, sure. Um, And then when they're finished, they end up at lots of different sacred locations on the island, sometimes up to um, 11 miles away because they want to have them along the shoreline with their backs to the sea, sort of keeping watch over the island. Um, How'd they get there? Anna, how'd they get there? Oh God, <laughs> it's okay. People did it. Is don't, is this the twist? <laughs> no, no. Don't don't start thinking about anything weird. It was people. People did it. 
And this is where experimental archaeology comes in. In 2012, archaeologists performed a study that seems to show how the Moai got around. And what I want to say first here is that traditionally among the Rapa Nui, the explanation for how the Moai got to where they are is they walked there, which in the past had been interpreted as kind of more of a spiritual interpretation of, you know, an an etiology, as we've talked about. But but, um, you know, the more we talk about this, the more uh, walking might make sense. So this is excerpted from National Geographic from an article that was written in 2012. The multi-ton behemoths, the Moai, traveled up to 11 miles or 18 kilometers from the quarry where most of them were carved without the benefit of wheels, cranes, or even large animals. Scientists have tested many ideas in the past, figuring that the islanders must have used a combination of log rollers, ropes, and wooden sledges. Now, a pair of archaeologists have come up with a new theory. Perhaps the statues, known as Moai, were engineered to move upright in a rocking motion using only manpower and rope. So, like, you know when you're moving your stuff into a new apartment and you've got that long, narrow bookcase that you're trying to get down the hall? And you just kind of wiggle it from side to side and it moves down the hallway. You you walk it. You walk it down, down the hallway. hallway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Terry Hunt of the University of Hawaii and Carl Lipo of California State University, Long Beach. We've mentioned them before. They <laughs> We've seem mentioned to be them in their texting habits. <laughs> <laughs> moai moai. Uh, have worked closely with the archaeologist Sergio Rapu, also mentioned above, who's part of the South Pacific Islands population of indigenous Rapa Nui to develop their idea. They've observed that fat bellies allowed the statues to be tilted forward easily, and heavy D-shaped bases could have allowed handlers to roll and rock the moai side to side. Last year, in experiments funded by the Nas- okay by the National Geographic Society's Expeditions yeah. <laughs> Council, Hunt and Lipa okay, we showed this. <laughs> ah, you're a thing. Hunt and Lipo <laughs> showed that as few as 18 people could, with three strong ropes and a bit of practice, easily and relatively quickly maneuver a 10 foot or three meter five ton moai replica a few hundred yards, a few hundred meters. Thank you, Nat Geo. <laughs> no logs were required. No logs, no rats. In previous efforts to solve the mystery, <laughs> Czech engineer Powell Powell. Yes. Nice. Worked with his, like, Paul Paul. Paul Paul. Yeah. Worked with Norwegian explorer adventurer Thor Heyerdahl and a team of 17 helpers to propel an upright 13-foot, 9-ton Moai forward. You'll notice I didn't say Moai replica. They used a real one. With twisting motions, keeping the statue fully upright at all times. That was in 1986. But Pavel's team damaged the Moai's base and had to stop. Oh, that, Just let cool. that sit for a sec. Hey, what else has Thor Heyerdahl done? Hey, uh, if you want to find out what else Torah Heyerdahl has done, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get access to the bonus episodes. And on this month's Deep Cuts, we're going to talk about Tor Heyerdahl and his voyage on the Contiki, which was a balsa wood raft <laughs> that he sailed from the South American mainland to Polynesia in an effort to try and explain how um, the islands were peopled. He was hypothesizing that they could have been done in this, it could have been done in this kind of raft. And he, he tried to do it to prove it. And boy, is it a story. So I'm really excited for this one. (laughs) And uh, if you're sensitive to things happening to parrots, maybe, maybe don't listen. But otherwise, it's a great story. What, like, content warning for like parrot damage? Yeah, parrot damage warning. I mean, my theory is that he flew away. Oh, God. To like a farm upstate? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> An underwater farm upstate. Oh, okay, so a year later, so 1987, archaeo- U.S. archaeologist Charles Love, Chucky Love. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, when I, oh, my God, I just had a flashback to my, to field work in the UAE. Uh-huh. There was this guy. So um, we we worked in Sharjah and Arab Emirates. Earl's love. There was a guy who had a low rider truck that was painted in this like sort of some like holographic 
kind of like pink. Oh, so it golly. was like a, it looked like it looked like a like a Lisa Frank trapper keeper, like <laughs> the way that they could kind of catch the yeah. light sometimes, like the prismatic one. Mm. And, and then it said on the side, "Love Professor." <laughs> And we were like, we had no idea who this guy was. He was just some guy who had this truck. And for years, um, people would like have sightings of the love professor, like on the highway. Oh my God. It it just came back to me. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to find him. Um, (laughs) Like a picture of him or... Him. No, it's because I know I know somebody caught a photo of him and they they posted it on Facebook. Like, all right, well, that's wow. going to be this, speaking of deep cuts. <laughs> this is <laughs> all right. Well, Chucky Love. No, I, okay, I'm, Professor I'm, I'm, Love. Yeah, I'm sure he's perfectly fine. Uh, and a team of twenty five <laughs> other people erected a thirteen foot nine ton model upright on a wooden sledge and moved it over log rollers, advancing it one hundred and forty eight feet in two minutes. So that was a theory for a long time. Meanwhile, for many of Rapa Nui's 2,000 or so indigenous people descended from the original Polynesian settlers, the answer is simple. Suri Tuki, a 25-year-old tour guide, says, quote, we know the truth. The statues walked, end quote. So fair enough. Yeah. It seems that the design, it's like those, um, those little inflatable things, the little inflatable people that you can, you can punch in the face but then they they bounce the, right the back weeble up wobbles. yeah i mean i don't go punching That's weebles right. but we, yeah weebles wobble but they don't fall down yeah 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 same idea but just with ropes and careful management neat all right let's have a, another quick ad break and then back to the story okay This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right. So... Let's meet one of these Moai, who is very famous. Oh, my God. So, (laughs) are you you starstruck? (laughs) Hoa Hakana Naya, whose name means lost or stolen friend, (laughs) um, arrived at the British Museum in 1869 after he was re-gifted by Queen Victoria, who received the statue... I know, right? Um, who received the statue from the Lords of the Admiralty in 1868, who claimed it Stole after it. it was stolen by the crew of the HMS Topaz. But it's Topaz with an E, Topaz. so I guess it's HMS Topaz. Topaz. It's very, cl- <laughs> it's very classy. It's Topaz. Mm. Um, also, I mean, regifted, not that classy, but like, to be honest, what's she going to do with it? I know that sort of... She's just yeah. out of the corner of her mouth like, um, thank you so much. <laughs> but yeah, like in the, the, they show like the, the acquisition record at the British Museum and I'm just like, this so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the Moai is 2.42 meters or 7.9 feet tall and is estimated to weigh five metric tons, which is 5.5 North American tons because long ton versus only short ton. And- Americans... So we, there's got to be a better way yeah, with weight. I know. Um, we're not, but, that's not the problem um, we're going to solve today. <laughs> but so when we've mentioned before, this is, um, you know, this is considerably smaller than the largest one. But this right. is much closer to uh, the size of, I guess, what one could call like the median. Your average mind. And, and what... Um, 
what these um, archaeological teams worked with sort of trying to figure out how to move, like similar yeah. weight, similar size. Um, so this one is part of the reason why it's so heavy is that it's carved of basalt and is only one of 14 basalt moai with the rest carved from tuff, which is a much softer, lighter form of volcanic rock. We it's got a about- lot more like air pockets. In yeah, it. we uh, we talked about tough uh, in the Green Sahara episode. Yeah, we did. Tufa. I knew we talked about it. Um, yeah. Um, hyper Tufa. Um, <laughs> In, sure. In 2012, new digital imaging technology allowed scientists from the University of Southampton to more closely study Hoa Hakana Naya and to get a better look at the very particular carvings on his back, which brings us to why we are talking about this one particular Moai today. His sweet back piece. In our show notes... We'll link to the British Museum Image Gallery where you can see the carvings for yourself, the, the results of this, like, the imaging done by the University of Southampton folks. Mm-hmm. Um, these carvings allude to the Tangata Manu cult or the Birdman cult. Um, for you, uh, f- for you see. <laughs> Did you write that? I wrote this. <laughs> I wrote this. <laughs> for you see, Hoa Hekana Naya was taken from Orongo, the ceremonial heart of the Tangata Manu cult, and was one of more than 1,800 petroglyphs and stone houses in that village. Um, the curator notes at, at the British Museum invoke the collapse narrative that we talked about when they contextualize the religion, saying, quote, the sculpture bears witness to the loss of confidence in the efficacy of the ancestors after the deforestation and ecological collapse, and most recently, a theory concerning the introduction of rats, which may have ultimately led to famine and conflict. Around A.D. 1500, the practice of constructing Moai peaked, and from around A.D. 1600, statues began to be toppled sporadically. The island's fragile ecosystem had been pushed beyond what was sustainable. Over time, only seabirds remained, nesting on safer offshore rocks and islands. As these changes occurred, so too did the Rapa Nui religion alter to the Birdman religion. Birdman! So I read some sources um, that describe this very collapse-driven transition to Tangata Manu religion as being this like violent process of knocking down Moai and fits of rage. Well, I- iconoclasm, like, kind of. Yeah, and also like, oh, what did you ever do for me, ancestors? Like kind of thing. And and that the only reason why Hoa Hakana Naya survived was because like the statue had Birdman references on his back. <laughs> and people were like, oh, this guy's cool. He's with us. And and so like I have a little note. Oh, <laughs> Birdman references like says cash money records on his back. Little. Thank you. I had to get my Birdman reference in. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, Do you get it, Anna? I did. Birdman's a rapper. He is a recording artist. (laughs) And he he heads up Cash Money Records. Okay, excellent. I was wondering if that alluded to a specific tattoo that he had, but... No, I just like... No, that's just my my one Birdman reference. Got to get it in there. Okay, well, me and the um, fellow people living under a rock. Thank you. But not this one. Not that uh, I found these. So I found all these sources a little sus. And eventually I found a really great article in a publication called Moe Verona, which is based in Rapa Nui. Do you ever wonder if you um, actually save any time by cutting your words in half? By saying sus <laughs> instead of suspicious? It was suspicious or suspect. Which is it? It's both. It's sus. Mm. I cannot suss it out. <laughs> exactly. So the author, or as I like to say, the auth. Um, mm. <laughs> so the author, um, Christian Moreno uh, Pacarati, is a Rapa Nui historian of Rapa Nui and appears to have dedicated his life and career to serving as an intercessor between Rapa Nui and the rest of the world. Not to like, I don't want to minimize it, but it's sort of like a family business. So like his um, his his grandparents were like very prominent Rapa Nui, um, sort of like cultural figureheads. Oh, cool. And um, he has he has other people in his ancestry who were um, very instrumental in Rapa Nui and wider Polynesian culture. And, I don't like, know if that's survival. minimizing it. I think that's sort of he is. I don't want to like I just don't like calling it like the, a family business no, sort of thing. But, but this is something that is cultural stewardship. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll link to Moe Verona in the show notes, but I want to share a rather lengthy excerpt from this article because it's it's really brilliant. Like, it's yeah. great. Lay it on me. Um, also, so Moe Verona is mostly in Spanish, and I think they have a guy that does translations. Oh, so boy. props okay. to that guy. Yeah. Because that, like, that, I'm hard. reading the English <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know if this was originally written in English um, or originally in Spanish, but either um, it's not Google Translate e like weird pigeon English. It's, it's not Google, like a human being that has a knowledge of both languages translated it um, or a human being with knowledge of both languages wrote it. But this is a free article. This is a free magazine that you can subscribe to. And I think if you if you read Spanish, you'll get more content. Um, but <laughs> that yeah, guy's probably. busy. <laughs> the one guy <laughs> they're like English version by and I'm like oh my god <laughs> that's um, so beginning in the 14th century, Pacific navigation began to diminish rapidly due to the Little Ice Age, which caused lower temperatures and drier climates. These effects made it impossible to maintain large colonies on those Polynesian islands that were most susceptible to the climate to climate change. The navigational route, which was most affected, was the southeastern, which led to the abandonment of all the islands between Mangareva and Rapa Nui. This left Rapa Nui isolated, now at twice the distance than before from the closest inhabited point. So Mangareva is 2,800 kilometers, so about 1,740 miles away. Mm -hmm. Although direct navigation between one island and another is not impossible, it was surely an excessive risk which, in the end, led to disconnection. The end of the era of long-distance navigation isolated the archipelagos of Hawaii, the New Zealand, and, obviously, the solitary island of Rapa Nui. This extreme isolation led to the development of unique, specific cultural traits. The, or the origin of the bird cult can be traced to this period of isolation and is a reinterpretation of the cult of the ancestors. It began to gain more acceptance and slowly replaced the megalithic giant stones. The construction of Moai reached its peak in the 15th and 17th at the 15th and 16th centuries, followed by a slow decline in effort, technique, and construction of ceremonial platforms. The apex of the bird cult wouldn't come until after contact with the first European explorers in the 18th century. Um, here's where it gets really good. <laughs> Two just like this is the part where I'm like, oh, okay. Two planes of existence converged in the concept of the universe on remote Rapa Nui. The people understood that life after death was something horizontal rather than vertical, differing from Judeo-Christian religions. The world of the mortals, of the living, was a triangular volcanic island. The beyond, or Po, where the spirits would go after leaving their corporal bodies, was as the sea and its depths where that parrot went nonetheless oh. <laughs> some spirits of higher hierarchy could travel even farther beyond the sea to Hiva or vake vake Hiva appears in legends as the land of origin of the first inhabitants of the island mm. although those legends tell of the island sinking into the ocean the easter islanders were able to be certain that other lands existed beyond the sea due to the arrival of birds oh. these birds had come these Sorry. birds had to come and go from somewhere. Some clues on what was to be found beyond can be seen on the shores of the island and in the cycles of nature. Tree trunks and wooden flotsam which arrived floating on the waves was a semi-divine signal. But easier to predict for the observers and the scholars of the island was the arrival of the turtles and migratory marine birds. The birds were part of the natural cycle, which together with the flowering of the trees and plants, the phases of development of the insects, the position of the sun and the stars, allowed people to calculate the passage of time and seasonal changes on the island." Birds became considered as a connection between the world of the living and the world of the spirits. They were the messengers of the spirits, of the ancestors, and of the gods. In the latter case, an avatar of the god Rongo, called Make Make, became the principal divinity associated with this cult. The Rapa Nui had to decipher the messages brought by these winged creatures from the spiritual world. That sounds tough. For that reason, the Manutara, 
the sooty tern, was given a preponderant position among all the migratory birds. With its arrival around the spring equinox, the message of the Manutara was perfectly clear. The end of winter, the end of cold, the end of scarcity. The beginning of abundance, of fertility, of good times. This is the new beginning of the annual cycle and a sign from the spirit of the spirit of the ancestors, among which are also the gods, to renew their alliance with the living. We can, therefore, consider that the bird cult was an extension and reinvention of the cult of the ancestors that arose from a particular trait. Wow. Right? Like, and also, this is like, so much better than the description that I found. Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was. That was bad. That was very like, bad. The person who wrote that should feel bad. Um, but also, this is something that is, you have to think about. They were in the middle of the ocean. They were further from anyone else than anybody could possibly be. Like, there were no yeah, apart people from, like, that were in further space. from yeah. other people ever anywhere on Earth. Right. So, which is the, exceptional. Like, they, and so they, like how how does time pass? Like how does time pass when you are that isolated? Like all you have is each other, all you have is this space, and like everything beyond you. And so it was it was a connection to everything else. This is like really beautiful, and like it makes sense. Like the way he's oh, written. I'm so this, glad you found this. It makes perfect sense. Yes. Like yeah, duh. And it's not like oh they're so silly. They love these birds. And it's like no, this is a like this is something that is is it like anchors you in time. Yeah. Um and so to wrap this up, um he says, its apogee was after the arrival of the first Europeans when the Tangado Manu, the the birdman, competition at Oranga reached its maximum expression. It is altogether possible that the arrival of these European ships simply confirmed to the islanders the truth behind their religious beliefs, transforming it into a type of cargo cult um, incorporated in the ritual symbols that can be found on the rock art at Orongo. This ritual came to an end with the depopulation of the island, the arrival of missionaries, and the imposition of Christianity on the demoralized survivors of a once great civilization. Oof. Yeah. Oof. So. So that's something that also stands in stark contrast to the collapse narrative. Right. This idea that they were like getting increasing. Like, so just just above when I was talking about what the British Museum said, where like, oh, they had to rely on these birds because like they ran out of other animals because they ate everything and each other. And there was collapse and they like lost faith in the ancestors and all this stuff. But actually, turns out, no, like if you if you listen to what this if like you listen Rapa to Nui the historian, people themselves. Yeah. And that it's actually something that things changed. And so people change, too. And so when they didn't have that um, consistent contact with wider Polynesian society, they kept going their own way. And this is a way to sort of reconnect with the with like the the relationship and worship of their ancestors and the gods beyond that, that this is a way to kind of stay in touch with it. Yes. It's a, it's a renewal. So like if the birds show up, like the ancestors are still looking out for us, that there's still something beyond. Yeah. Yeah, There's still something beyond the ocean. There's still something else. And just that, you know, as somebody who grew up like in a landlocked mountainous place, um, I can't like um, the Oakland Museum of California had a I think it was a temporary ex- exhibit. If it's not folks in the Oakland area should definitely go see it. Um, but it was on Oceania. And so it was in part like a, a looking at the relationship of um, Pacific Islanders to the Bay Area and like descendant mm-hmm. communities there, but also looking at the islands. And I remember they had a. They could go through the exhibits and there was one that was, um, I think it was Vanuatu. And so it was kind of created this kind of the environment. And so you go out and you're kind of on an, you're on an atoll and it just, it gave me like this sense of like agoraphobia Yeah, because you're like on a chunk of rock in the middle of the ocean and like you, I, I can't, I could not wrap my head around it. <laughs> and it was really like upsetting and like just being in a room and just like sitting, like standing there and being like, Oh my God, that it's just, you can see from one side to the other and that you're stuck here. And if something goes wrong, 
like on like a like I, I understand how like like on people a can be kind of attracted level. to like this idea of collapse, like that it could all go horribly wrong because it does seem like one false There's a lot, move of, a lot of consequences. And, yeah. And so just like thinking about being like on this island. And so, you know, like tree trunks can like wash ashore and you're like, oh, it's there. Oh, it's still goodness. out there. There's stuff out There's there. trees somewhere. And and so after the um, navigational routes stopped, like either lessened or stopped, there would have been because um, Oral history is like oral tradition is very strong on Rapa Nui. So there would it like they would know that like, well, they know they got here from somewhere and they knew that within a few generations, people had come through and yeah, like they had had trade and they had exchange and they just like or just like knowing that there were other people out there. And so just having this reminder that there's something other than you is really powerful. Yeah. So to wrap things up, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about navigation. Let's. <laughs> um, this is based on a recollection from the, the depths of my brain fishbowl, which actually turned out to be correct this time. So good job, me. Um, but first, a little bit from the Oxford Handbook of Prehistoric Oceania. A traditional name for the island, Tepito Otehanua, translates as navel of the world, or more apt, the end of the world, reflecting its isolation and remoteness. Rapa Nui's geographic isolation is increased by its extreme windward position. Sailing to Rapa Nui from central Polynesia would have meant driving... Driving? Well, okay. You drive a boat. Yeah. Don't you drive boats? Well, I think it drive means... That boat, dri drive that plane? <laughs> I think it means driving in the sense of emphatic forward motion i just got i just it's it startled me okay anyway it would have meant driving that boat directly into the prevailing east southeasterly trade winds and strong currents of the south pacific in case you're not a sailor that's hard such a windward voyage would normally require tacking making the journey approximately four times farther than a straight line distance oh so again if you're not a sailor tacking is if you are sailing directly into the wind it's really hard to do because as you might expect, the wind pushes you directly backwards. So if you sail at an angle to the wind backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, it's like going up a mountain and using switchbacks instead of taking the direct line. Okay. You're going back and forth and back and forth. So it really increases your distance, but it means that you can sail against the wind. So they would have it either... It makes it possible, but, but... But a pain in the butt. Further. Yeah. Like, and also... East southeasterly means that the wind was coming from east southeast. Yes, into it's not, it's not pushing you in that direction. No, it's coming from it's that it's coming from that direction. Yes, I took geology one hundred and three Earth systems. <laughs> Earth systems. It's like one of the. This is what I remember from. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure uh, my divisional requirements. Yeah, I was going to say, Don. I was going to say, I'm sure I'm sure Don would be proud. Um, <laughs> so tacking a windward voyage would normally require tacking, increasing the distance. But recent research suggests voyaging windows provided by westerly winds coming from the west associated with periodic El Nino conditions may have enabled Polynesian colonists to make a downwind sail to the island. So the wind would be at your back. So you could just go wee. Um, in any case, voyaging to Rapa Nui from central Polynesia meant discovering or later relocating a very small target in a vast, empty region of the southeastern Pacific. Like you said, like, how'd they do that? <laughs> so thinking like, about mm? that, that, yeah, just like I want, I'm sorry to keep like forcing people into galaxy brain moments but like no no it's it's a you're huge in the amount of space of the pacific ocean it's and like if you can you go to google earth and the st like go to google <laughs> earth and just find we gave you the coordinates right up at the top of the show you could type those in or you can just search <laughs> rapa nui or search easter island and just zoom out <laughs> and wait wait and, till like, also, you see land in in like in 2020 it is hard to get from one place for another like for work i like was was trying to get a um some a, a colleague from fiji 
also too far and in the ocean. It's it's still it is very difficult with and we have planes like we got planes. (laughs) We got big planes. You got to drive that plane. We drive that plane. So it's something that is it is absolutely incredible that and like. In no way is this pejorative. No, we're not saying it's amazing like that indigenous these people like accomplished navigators, it. just like just that, anybody that a human yeah. can like intentionally get from this island back to it on purpose and to another one. Yeah, yeah. Like I just yeah. So this is what made me think of the thing that we're about to talk about. Thinking about groups of Polynesians <laughs> navigating made me remember something I learned a long time ago. So. I, I was good and I didn't just say I, I remember this thing. I went looking for actual corroboration and it turns out I was not just making it up. So let's talk for a moment about traditional Polynesian navigation techniques, which may or may not have been used in the journey to Rapa Nui. And I will say that this comes along with a lot of other really amazing, um, sophisticated navigation and mapping techniques. Like um, some Polynesian groups would make these grid maps or these woven um they were made out of palm fronds and and other sort of um, twigs and, you know, natural materials in this kind of grid. And the grid represented different ocean currents and then different shells or stones or other materials would be woven into that grid to denote um, things within, you know, so islands or destinations. And so that would be rather than having, you know, a paper foldable map that you have in your driver's seat, they would have sometimes these physical objects that would represent um, ocean currents and actual physical locations. But in the absence of that, (laughs) they did other things. And so the source that I found, uh, possibly the cringiest title I've ever found, (laughs) which I immediately texted to Amber for confirmation that it was the cringiest title. And I think, yeah, still a winner. I think so. Okay. So this is from an article entitled The Soft, Warm, Wet Technology of Native Oceania by Harriet Witt. And it was originally published in Whole Earth Review in the fall of 1991, in case you're curious. Uh, So I have excerpted from this article. Quote. And it's just, you're like, oh, maybe it's not so cringy. Wait. No, it is. (laughs) Quote. A man's testicles might not seem like something to be used for navigation, but they were and are in native Oceania. So are stars, driftwood, clouds, seaweed, winds, birds, weather, the smell, taste, and temperature of the ocean, interference patterns on the sea surface, and the olfactory sense of an onboard pig. How? Our search for the answer begins in our 50th state. So this, the rest of this article is sort of a series of musings on ethnographic accounts of navigation from Hawaii. But since this extends to kind of the larger Polynesian population in terms of navigation techniques, I figured it was apropos here. So we, we've skipped a bit and, and now we, we continue. What does he, the navigator, do when it's cloudy? As the sun or stars disappear, he translates his position into the language of wind, wave, and swell angles. He notes the ratio of pitch to roll induced in his boat by the dominant swell and keeps to his course by keeping this ratio constant. So understanding that he's pointed in a constant direction and the boat is reacting in a consistent way. If the wind changes, he notes it before it affects the waves and adjusts his mental calculations accordingly. Which this is just mind boggling. Like you have to have this whole system in place in your head and you have to have learned it. It has to have been this cultural tradition passed down from, you know, from teacher to student. Wild. He recognizes different winds as much by their character as by their direction. He may track the wind with a pennant attached to the mast. He may monitor wind, waves, swells, and the relative angles between them by mentally timing the dippings of the tip of the sail. To get a feeling for what the Wayfinder is doing all this time with his testicles, it helps to understand ocean swells. I mean, I wasn't. What are you doing with your testicles, sir? (laughs) The persistent question. (laughs) Ocean swells, Amber. 
These enormous formations are powered by distant storms and steady trade winds and shouldn't be confused with surface waves, which change direction as the local wind shifts. Swells march in consistent ranks across thousands of miles. The swell entertaining surfers in Honolulu is generated by winds south of New Zealand. If you can read the shape of a swell, you can tell the direction and strength of the current beneath it, and this is critical because if you don't know what the current is doing, you can steer a perfect course and still get lost. The wayfinder reads the swell by sitting cross-legged and nearly naked on the bottom of his all-vegetable matter canoe and feeling it in his testicles. So, I mean, yes, it's funny because testicles, but it's the most sensitive or at least one of the most sensitive parts of the male body. And... So why not use it as as um, a tool, as it were? Well, I guess we ended up not talking about just one kind of stones today, did we? Eh. All right. That's my time, everybody. You've been great. <laughs> Good night. So, <laughs> no, but really, we're going to wrap up the episode us. here. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're actually done. Um, you can find us. Um, if you still want to. On Facebook. <laughs> if, you, if you still want to. Um, you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. Over on Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Yep. And you can find all of that as well as show notes which we mentioned, for all of our episodes on our website, thedirtpod.com. And there you can also buy merch or sponsor episodes, all your very own, and support us on patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. But for right now, we want you to give that money to a mutual aid fund near you or to an organization like those compiled by Reclaim the Block. And so that's at bit.ly slash fundthecommunity. And we will link to that again in our show notes. Yeah. And so um, with a lot of these um, organizations like Reclaim the Block, they got flooded with donations. And now what they're doing instead is putting up kind of Google Docs that they're keeping updated Mm -hmm. for places where you can divert those funds. Yeah. And that includes like locally owned businesses and um, as well as larger um, funds that distribute to people who need them. Yeah. So um, we'll do that. We're okay. Yeah, we're doing good. Do that for now. Do that for right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You you um, support us by listening. You support us by leaving reviews and stars on all the places that that you can do that. And uh, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for listening. Yeah. We love you. We we do. We do. Bye. I'm really I'm really trying not to make another testicles joke. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.